Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what I'm doing this time round is I... It's the one time where the the opening doesn't quite fit the tone of the rest of this podcast, because I'm talking about Ukraine this time round. I can justify that it's within the cultural conversation, because for months we've been seeing this build-up of troops on Ukraine's border, and there's been this big question about will they or won't they invade. And then last Thursday, it's sort of like I'm dating it now, Last Thursday, the Russians invaded, and I, like everybody else on that Thursday, 24th of February, woke up in the morning, looked at my phone and looked at the news and felt absolutely sick to the stomach. The Russian assault on Ukraine began with missile attacks on key targets. I'm not really going to be going a lot into the current events because they're so fluid and they're happening so fast that there's no point. As soon as the podcast comes out, they'll kind of be redundant. Interestingly, because the timings of this... So basically, Putin, in essence, announced war and invasion at five to six in the morning, Moscow time, which is five to three in the morning, UK time, which is about 10 o'clock at night in America, which means that you have these kind of late night talk show hosts. My personal favorite is Stephen Colbert. They do all the topical news of the day. But this happened just as this stuff was going out. In other words, after it was recorded. And so I found it really interesting that although The Late Show or whatever, Seth Meyers, you know, other people are available, they're pretty good at sort of like giving you a summary of the day stuff. Even though it was only six hours old, I was looking at it and going, this is completely redundant. It is really interesting at how fast news moves nowadays. And obviously fake news and so on and so forth. So, okay, I'm acknowledging that. Obviously, my heart and thought goes out to everybody affected by conflict. Nobody deserves to suddenly be a refugee in their own country. Nobody deserves to be bombed out of their own home. You know, the, these are people who are just trying to get on with their life. And then suddenly war descends like a, a brutal monster just devouring all before it. It's not good. So that's the situation, but I thought it would be a good time because this is a chance for me to talk about some things I know about and some things that I've been writing about for some time, but also I've had to do some research as well because I'm going to talk to you about the history of Ukraine and how when Vladimir Putin says that Ukraine has always been part of Russia, that is so spectacularly wrong in terms of looking at the actual history of things. It just shows you 
how his agenda is so different to the realities of the world and how he is paying no attention to history, but also to agreed political agreements in the past and from fairly recent in, in the past as well. And so hopefully if you come with this journey, you might learn a few things and also it might sort of clarify exactly why this is all happening. So, you know how I like to try and push things back as far as possible? Well, the area of modern-day Ukraine is actually mentioned in the very first history book. Herodotus, the histories, is considered the first history book. It is flawed in many, many ways, okay? That's not entirely accurate. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. One of the key things he fails to do in a history book is have any dates. Also, there's an awful lot of legends mixed in there as well. But he talks about Cyrus the Great, in essence, going into the lands north of the Black Sea. So you can see sort of Crimea and into Ukraine proper. And he's basically trying to put down the, the local tribes and they just sort of disappear into the steppe. The sheer size and scale of Ukraine and also it's kind of almost featureless topography is mentioned in the very first history book. Now, I'm not going to go into that. It was very much a sideline to the other awesome things the Persian Empire was doing. And I'm going to fast forward about a thousand years, because then we come to another group that we all know of, the Vikings. Well, you know, technically Scandinavian culture. When they go wandering, as I've said before, they're referred to as Vikings. That is not actually the name of the culture, but I'm just going to use Viking because you all know what I mean. To the West, they start raiding. You know, like in England, like in Ireland, like in France. And sometimes they actually set up trading posts. Dublin, which is the capital city of the Republic of Ireland, is originally a Viking settlement. Indeed, Dublin is kind of a mangling of like Gaelic and Old Norse. And it literally means, if you translate it into English, Blackpool. And there is a Blackpool in England as well. So maybe those two cities should perhaps be friends or something like that. I don't know. When you're the best of friends. There's an example of how the Vikings didn't just raid. They were exceptional explorers. Obviously, they made it to North America, but also they were great traders, too. Let's not take away. There is actually a history of the history of the Vikings and how, particularly in the mid 20th century, so much time was spent on saying, look, aren't longboats incredible construction and incredible inventions? Yes, they are. And aren't they great traders? Yes. And explorers? Yes. But they kind of forgot the fact that they did do a lot of raping and pillaging and destruction. Let's not forget that. So nowadays is perhaps a more nuanced look. A hundred years ago, it was all about kind of the savage noble. But while we're very aware of what happened in the West, the Scandinavians went East too, because Again, going back to those amazing longships of theirs, they were sturdy enough to cross the North Atlantic, which is a remarkable feat of something that's made just of wood and sail-driven. Well done them. But they were shallow draft. They didn't go very deep, in other words. So what did that mean? It meant that if they got onto a major riverway, they could travel down the rivers, like, you know, the Volga and some of these great rivers in Eastern Europe, heading into modern-day Russia, etc. And so they went down one of these rivers and started trading with the locals and created a trading post that evolved into a town that later on became its own independent city-state. And that place is called Kiev. I'm aware that everybody calls it Kiev. And this is one of the other things. There is a, a war of language at the moment. Kiev, as in Chicken Kiev, which Interesting fact is not common in Ukraine. It's a little unclear why 
everybody thinks Ukrainians eat chicken Kiev all the time, and we can understand the mistake there. But it seems to have been made there, and maybe some tourists had some there, but it's not what your average Ukrainian person would sort of sit down and eat of an evening. But anyway, if you are talking in the Ukrainian language, it's Kiev. So in other words, it's like spelling it K-E-E-V in terms of how you would actually say it. It's actually spelt K-Y-I-V, and Ukrainian is different to Russian. They are similar languages, just like Spanish and Italian are similar languages, but they clearly come from a common root. A bit more on that common root in, in a moment. So I think that nowadays we should absolutely be doing the Ukrainian phrasing and spelling of stuff in Ukraine rather than the Russian way of doing it. Again, there's history around this, but, you know, if you're going to show solidarity, perhaps call it what the locals call it. So, yes, it's actually founded by a Scandinavian dynasty. It shows you how surprisingly multicultural these places are. And the Vikings in the East did just as much trading and pillaging and exploring as they did in the West. Now, once you see Kiev, you can see that it's, relatively speaking, not that difficult to use various rivers to get out into either the Sea of Azov, which is the very northerly part of the Black Sea, or into the Crimean Peninsula, or into the Black Sea proper. And then after that, the Vikings know how to traverse water. One of the things we tend to think nowadays is that waterways are a barrier, and they can be useful in terms of things like borders. But in the ancient times, in medieval times, you could actually ship things faster than putting it on an ox cart and going down these muddy country lanes. So actually, the Black Sea in, let's say, 1000 AD, was like a superhighway of trade, where from the north there were things like amber and furs and walrus ivory. That's a thing, by the way. This was taken by the princes of Novgorod and sent to the richest place in the world, down south, which is Constantinople. Basically, it's on the edges of the Black Sea, so it's the perfect trading place. Now, I've mentioned the year 1000 AD, but it was already been happening for several centuries, and Byzantine Empire at that time, in the 800s, 900s, thousands, was still considerably large. It was probably the largest political entity in all of Europe. It had plenty of cash and was very good at trading. So... Yeah, why wouldn't they trade with this major power of its time? It was clearly on the wane. It wasn't as big as it had been 500 years earlier, but it was still a big deal. And it's obviously through... The now, there is this myth, if you like, about why do we have the Orthodox Church in places like Ukraine and Russia as opposed to Catholic Church, for example. And the story goes that an embassy that had come from Kiev walked into Hagia Sophia, San Sophia, this massive, huge, for, for nearly a thousand years, it was the largest church in the world, Christian church in the world. And the diplomat said, it was as if I was walking into heaven itself. This is a great story, but it kind of implies that nobody's ever been into that church before and because for centuries there had been interactions between these two civilizations that's highly unlikely instead if you look at byzantium and its kind of political planning particularly in the middle ages they used their religion as basically a tool of negotiation in other words i'll give you a better deal if you convert to 
Orthodox Christianity. It's less romantic, but that is far more likely what actually happened. So anyway, we now have Ukraine, obviously in Scandinavia itself, by the time you get to roughly 1000 AD, you're getting conversions into Christianity. But those conversions into Christianity were under the Western Church, i.e. Rome, whereas in the East, these Scandinavians, which very much now are using Slavic names, and they married into the local sort of Slavic population, they did for a time consider themselves Scandinavian. But, you know, it's one of these things. Once, you, once your wife is from a country and you're living in that country and your kids all grow up in that country and their first language is that country's language, they might all make a nod to the old world, but it's, it's beginning to fade away. And so that's what's happening by round about 1000 AD. And indeed, in 980 AD, going into the, the first millennium, we have the first official Grand Prince of Kiev called Vladimir I. Sounds pretty Slavic to me, doesn't it? And interesting, the Rus, the name where we get Russian from, is a derivation of the local sort of Slavic languages, which is a corruption of the rowers. So you can see how they're related to their sort of Scandinavian origins, or at least some of the culture is, at least. Very controversial. I mean, look, if you asked a historian two years ago about all this, an expert on this, on this kind of like the expansion of the Viking network over the Middle Ages, they would say, yeah, there's no contest about this. But you can see how this is suddenly taking everything away from Russia. It's, it's making out that Russia didn't sort of pop out of the ground being Russia with all its Russian glory. And so this is highly contested in places like Belarusia and Russia itself, Russia proper. So you can see this is sort of like an evolution. And so far, I haven't mentioned anything really about Russia because it doesn't exist. Moscow comes later because what we now get is these grand princes of Kiev are also working with other Slavic groups, in particular, this country called Novgorod or this area, this civilization and culture called Novgorod, which is further north. And eventually the two of them combine. And this is, if you like, the first great Slavic state of Novgorod, still no mention of Russia. But we've mentioned the Vikings, we briefly mentioned the Persians, but now we're going to mention two other things that have sort of real impact, particularly in the 1200s, that you all at least have heard of, if not necessarily are hugely aware of. So first of all, let's do the most destructive force. The Mongols. Everyone knows the Mongol Empire stretched across the whole of Asia into Europe, so that means at some point they're going to get into this area. And you have one of Genghis Khan's great generals, Subutai. He is an amazing person, one of the greatest generals, probably one of the greatest travelers and explorers also of all time. When people say you can't ever conquer Russia by land, the answer is we'll try telling people like Tamerlane and Genghis Khan that because they did. And actually, a lot of early Russian history is about being a subject vassal state to the Mongol Empire. And this is worth remembering when I mention a big famous name in Slavic history coming up in a bit. But he was a vassal to the Mongols. He may have done some pretty impressive things, but he still had to pay his annual tithe to the Mongols because he certainly didn't have enough of resources to stop another invasion from those guys. But it is worth remembering. In the 1200s, Polish history and Japanese history are very different, except for one thing. Both countries faced invasion from 
the Mongol Empire. And if that doesn't show you how powerful, how widespread the Mongol Empire is in just one sentence, I don't know what is. We all know about the Mongols with their horses rampaging across the Asian steppes. As always, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that doesn't explain how they managed to get to Japan. It certainly doesn't explain what they would do with their tactics in Vietnam. Yeah, they're in Vietnam. Obviously, the horses and the little furry hats are, are no longer needed in the mountainous, jungly area of Vietnam. They conquered Korea as well. So they got into Poland. They actually did this amazing pincer movement between Hungary, modern-day Hungary and Poland. The gap between the two pincers of the Mongol invasion into Europe proper were 500 miles different, and yet they were able to strike almost simultaneously, sending shockwaves across Europe. Now, the reason why I'm going to sort of like briefly pause on, on the Poland side of thing is basically there's this famous battle, the Battle of Lignitz, and in essence, the Mongols annihilated this big coalition army, part Lithuanian, part Polish, but most importantly, it had the Teutonic Knights there, one of these military orders associated with crusading. Now, the Teutonic Knights were in the Middle East. Their two more famous brethren were the Knights Hospitler, which were probably the biggest of all, and the Knights Templar, which everybody knows, sort of like, oh, you know, Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff. This crusade, one of the most massive sweeping in history, was actually orchestrated by a secret brotherhood, the Priory of Sion, and their military arm, the Knights Templar. Well, no, but... You've got the idea. These holy knights, these are the, the most well-trained, well-equipped, fighting literally for God knights. All of them were fighting in the Middle East. However, the Teutonic Knights, and this is where we get the term Teutonic, meaning German, they also fought in the north in these things called the Northern Crusades. More on that in a moment. But you've got cream of the crop of these guys fighting with another big coalition army against the Mongols at the Battle of Lignitz, and they are annihilated. And to this day, Poland believes that because the Mongols didn't come back and conquer the rest of Poland, the, the story in Poland is that they caused such heavy casualties to the Mongols that they didn't dare step foot in Poland again. If that's what keeps you in bed at night, that's great, you do you. However, that's not what happened. Basically, every time a Mongol Khan dies, everybody has to go back to the home country and discuss who's going to be the next Khan. And that's what happened. So basically, it just caught up with the army. It's like, hang on, the Khan's dead. Got to go back all the way to Mongolia from Poland. And that's why they didn't ever come back again. Also, quite frankly, medieval Europe was poor compared to taking over imperial China, which is what they did for a large chunk. Of, and also the Middle East as well. These things happened later. So, yeah, there were just simply bigger fish to fry. Not Poland was an indestructible bastion of awesomeness. Apologies to Polish listeners. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So while the Mongols didn't actually capture Poland, and they, by the way, they also annihilated the army in Hungary as well, the Hungarian king had to flee for his life. He nearly got captured. It does mean that areas further east, i.e. modern-day Belarusia and Ukraine and Russia in proper, all these areas were now under Mongol rule. And this is the weird thing. This is the critical thing where we start seeing a change of balance of power. Because up until this point, into the 1200s, Kiev is the, is the epicenter of Slavic culture in that area, in Eastern Europe. However, it wasn't very conveniently placed for the Mongols, so they set up a new town which was just closer to the steppe, it was just an easier area to have an administrative hub for their territories in modern-day Eastern Europe, and that place is called Moscow. Again, uncomfortable fact for Putin is he's sitting in a place that was founded by an invading army, and that's showing that, sorry, Russia has been successfully invaded in the past. And slowly, over centuries, the balance of power moved from Kiev to Moscow. And eventually, we're going to come to the foundation of the Tsars of, of Russia. But we're not there yet, because only a few years after this Mongol invasion, we then have... So basically, the Teutonic Knights have dusted themselves off, and they've rebuilt their army, and so on and so forth. And we have this thing called the Northern Crusades. It's something that, when you say Crusades, everybody thinks Middle Eastern Muslims, and it's far more complicated than that. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. Want to know more? I've written a whole book about it called Deus Vault, A Concise History of the Crusades by Jem Daduchu. It's the only book I'm aware of that genuinely talks about all the Crusades in less than 500 pages, so it's actually a manageable amount. But the thing about the Crusades is they shaped Europe. They went on for centuries. They didn't just happen in the Middle East. The longest-running one-off campaign is something called the Albigensian Crusade in the very early 1200s in France against heretics. Fourth Crusade never even got to the Middle East. It ended up attacking Constantinople, Istanbul was Constantinople, which was Orthodox Christian. And in the north of Europe, there's these series of campaigns that become known as the Northern Crusades. They were never actually called that at the time. There were, I know this is weird to say, but there were pagans still in Northern Europe particularly around Estonia, there was this group in Northern Europe called the Wends, 
and they had basically a spiritual holy horse that they would ask advice in terms of like being a soothsayer. And before you start chuckling about that, let's face it, the Romans, who we all think are super smart, would slaughter a chicken and check out its guts to work out whether you should fight or not tomorrow. So, yeah, I mean, fine. The Wems had a horse. Had a, had a magic horse. Fine. Horse died occasionally and they had to replace it with a new one. No such thing as the Wens anymore. Why is that? Because there was this aggressive religious warfare in Northern Europe. So just like in the Middle East, it was happening in Northern Europe, only it happened a lot longer. Now, I got in big trouble in the past. When, Why is Poland Christian? Because of the Crusades. Now, it is more complicated than that. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. The vast majority of modern-day Poland was already Christianized, etc. But the very north of what would be considered modern-day Poland actually had invasions by the Teutonic Knights because there were still pagans there. So basically, it's from Poland up into places like Lithuania and Estonia, etc., where there were these pagans and you can understand from a logical point of view of a christian crusader you're definitely going to attack pagans but once they've done that and indeed the locals became very enthusiastic christians joined in in the wars the epicenter being riga and then sort of moving out from there and they pushed east into and i said i'd mentioned it before novgorod so this is slavic this is orthodox christian and they went to war and if you like, the, the key moment is in 1242 at the, well, sometimes called the Battle of the Frozen Lake or the Battle at Lake Pipus. And this is between the Novgorodian Orthodox army led by Alexander Nevsky and specifically the Teutonic Knights. So this, in essence, is exactly the same as a fight between, I don't know, the Third Crusade and Saladin in terms of its theological point of view, except they are actually attacking Christians. Also, zero desert and palm trees, lots of snow, ice and pine trees. So that's what's going on here, which is very counterintuitive to what you think of when I say crusade. I'm aware of that. Now, Alexander Nevsky is like King Arthur. Hail, King Arthur! Hail, King Arthur! Or Moses, if you, are, if you live in Eastern Europe, particularly Slavic areas and especially Russia. It is worth remembering that Sergei Eisenstein, with his amazing Soviet-era black-and-white silent movies, where he's done Affleship Pintemkin, for example, is one of his, his classics, but another one of his classics was Alexander Nevsky. And if you, you can see it on YouTube, it is in black-and-white and it is silent, but seeing the battle scene of this frozen lake, even though it's a hundred years old, it's still impressive cinema to this day. It looks very much like some of the battles in Lord of the Rings. It's amazing. And why? why? This is a pretty obscure thing. This might be the first time you've ever heard of this battle, because it was seen as one of the founding battles that unified, that showed Western Europe that Eastern Europe was not to be messed with. It was another one on these kind of northern crusades against Novgorod called the Battle of Tannenberg, and it was again a crushing defeat for these Germanic forces, and so much so that at the beginning of World War One, there was a clash very near that battleground where the German forces annihilated the Russian forces, and so the Germans named it Second Tannenberg. It had been stinging for like 500 years, give or take, that they wanted to sort of get their revenge. So that was the Germanic revenge on this. And indeed, make no mistake about it, the Teutonic Knights are the epitome of Germany. And funnily enough, this is being filmed, you know, basically around World War II, when you've got the Germans attacking Russia again. Although at the very beginning, they were allies. Again, complicated. 
So, what happened at the Battle of this Frozen Lake, where they, these soldiers were led by Alexander Nevsky? Teutonic Knights, their cavalry was probably the best in the world, or at least the military orders had the best heavy cavalry in the world at that time. They were better equipped, and basically everything led to the fact that Nevsky was in big trouble. He probably had a similar-sized army, but they were much poorer equipped, and also it was largely infantry, which was very vulnerable against cavalry. And he decided to have this battle on this lake, which is open ground, perfect for cavalry. Except he worked out that basically this cavalry was so heavy that basically what you think's going to happen actually happened. Cavalry charged. They ended up in an area of the lake where it was thin ice, and you have hundreds of these knights, heavily armored knights, falling into the freezing water. So they're now suffering from shock. Also, all their outfit is, in, is now waterlogged. Don't forget they're wearing gambesons, these heavy padded jackets underneath their armor. So they just sunk like stones to the bottom of it. And Nevsky had a great victory and also critically a sign of like, you know, Russian ingenuity. I'm deliberately using that term anachronistically there. We've got the Mongols rampaging through the area. We've got the Crusades rampaging through the area. And all of this is creating a certain identity of these people. Kind of feel under threat. Moscow, as I said, slowly becomes the epicenter of power and administration and ruling. And then, round about the same time, Constantinople falls to the give or take. We're talking a few decades difference here. But basically, you have the... They consider themselves Roman emperor, emperors up until Constantine XI dies in the siege of Constantinople in 1453, when the Ottomans finally take over the last bastion of the Byzantine Empire, which technically is the last bastion of the Roman Empire. And that is when you get Ivan IV of Moscow, another sort of like prince, suddenly declaring himself Tsar, which is the Russian, Slavic, for Caesar which is the same title that they that they had during you know, the Roman Empire. So this is where they, because they, they feel like Moscow is now the new Constantinople. We're also Orthodox Christian. You know, we, we feel a connection to this place that's just been let down. We are bastions of Christian goodness, etc., etc. And so Ivan IV, commonly referred to as Ivan the Terrible, Again, probably a mistranslation, probably better Ivan the Awesome. That might be perhaps a better name. And now we get what we're starting to see is, oh, okay, Moscow, czars. You know, they, they start talking about Russia more often. I get this now. And at this stage, you know, Kiev is now part of this hege hegemony. Hegemony, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that word. Hegemony. Hegemony. But just briefly back to that Lake Pripus, that battle on the frozen lake. Where is that in the modern world? Well, interestingly, it's on the border area between Estonia, modern-day Estonia, and modern-day Russia. So you can see where that is, and that's still quite, that's a long way north from where modern-day Ukraine is. So you can see that Novgorod was, you know, quite a large area, quite a large principality at the time. So we've now got czars. We've now got Russia. This is all sounding far more straightforward, isn't it, Jem? And yes, it is. Until we get to something that almost everybody's completely forgotten about, is there was this, for a brief period of time, there was this incredibly powerful state in Central Europe called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yeah. So th this, <laughs> this is all a bit weird here. So the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is massive. Poland, Lithuania, and substantially uh, chunks of other areas as well. And this, we're now jumping forwards into the 1600s, and they start heading east. And basically... 
I can start making some sense of some of these borders and why these places called different places now. In essence, the area that was administrated by Lithuania, so the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was in essence one kingdom, one territory. But the reality was there were obviously these two slightly different ways of looking at it, slightly different languages, cultures, etc. And basically the northern part of their territory that they won was administered by Lithuania, and the modern name for that area is Belarusia, whereas the southern area that was ruled by Poland is Ukraine. So that's why those two areas that still have very similar languages, culture, etc., has led to these two different identities over time. It's because of invasion from their, from their perspective from the West. And what's interesting is because basically Poland, which was very Catholic, did a deal with the Orthodox community and basically, the, this is where the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is subtly different to the Russian Orthodox Church because it's had a little bit of influence from the West and Catholic influence there. Don't want to go too into, into that. And again, sensibilities get stung at that point. But also, you get people who fought against the Tsars of Russia to keep Ukraine independent and sometimes keeping them independent from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. These leaders, real political leaders, have become saints in churches in, Ukraine, in the Ukrainian Orthodox world, whereas those people are reviled in Russia because they were the bad guys, you know, the ones trying to stop Russian hegemony. Hegemony. So that's what's going on there. However, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth you haven't heard of it because eventually it fails and sort of collapses. And then the Russian Empire under the likes of Peter the Great, who was ruling in the very late 1600s into the 1700s. He does a grand tour of Europe and realizes how far behind his Russian territories are. And so he sets up a third capital city. It's kind of progressively going more and more further north. Starts with Kiev, then it goes to Moscow, and then the imperial czarist capital from the early 1700s into the 1900s isn't Moscow, it's St. Petersburg, named after Peter. He gets to name it himself, and he also be, gets to be a saint too. And if you look at the, basically, we all know what the Kremlin looks like, and that looks as Russian as it gets, because it was built pre-Peter the Great. You look at St. Petersburg, and it's sort of like beautiful old buildings there. It's designed to impress. It's, you know, it's, it's meant to sort of like be a showcase of Russian awesomeness, but it's very influenced by Western, particularly places like French and neoclassical architecture. What's that doing somewhere that far north? The Romans never went there. That's why. So suddenly we've got, again, a completely different center of royal power, of authority, of government, etc. It's gone all the way up to St. Petersburg now. And then we get World War One. So World War One. You probably know a fair bit about that, but bottom line, World War One in, in Russia evolves into the Russian Revolution. Oh, the Russians have pulled out of the war. <laughs> well, we soon saw them off, didn't we, sir? The Russians are on our side. <laughs> and what's important is this Russian Revolution is just a mess. Because, yes, we all know about how there's the white Russians backing the old czarist regime, want to sort of keep it the way it was. They're not the good guys. They basically want to be autocratic. And then you've got the red communists. But there was also the greens in Russia, which were basically large peasant armies just fed up with both the reds and whites marching through their area and stealing their crops. There were also the blacks. These were anarchists. They were particularly prevalent in urban areas and also in Ukraine. But you also had nationalist armies places like Mongolia trying to break away from the Soviet Union. 
and also, you know, obviously the Ukraine themselves, the Ukrainians themselves were, sort of saw this as an opportunity to break away from Russia, even though they'd been under sort of like Russian control for maybe 200 years. There is a different language there. There is a different sort of church there. The idea of nationalism in Ukraine hadn't gone away. They were willing to fight for it and cutting a long, very complicated, multiple states, multiple armies, multiple attempts to build a separate Ukraine. Ultimately, it fails. It gets crushed by the Bolsheviks, by the communists, and it gets absorbed into the Soviet Union. So this is all happening in the 1920s. By the 1930s, Stalin's in charge. Ukraine is very good at producing grain. All these collectivized farms are far less efficient than the way they used to be farmed. But more importantly, Stalin wants some cold, hard cash so that he can industrialize the Soviet Union. He recognizes they're way behind in terms of industrialization. Where do we get the cash from? We get it from selling crops. Unfortunately, what are we going to give the locals to eat? Nothing. There was a huge famine in the 1930s, the Soviet grain famine, where it's estimated that five million people died. Four million of those were in Ukraine. So that explains why when World War II breaks out and Germany arrives, a lot of Ukrainians thought that these, look, they'd just been through hell. There'd been purges, there'd been collectivization, there'd been a mass famine killing about 20% of the population. Could the Nazis be any worse? Turns out, yes, they could. But this is where you get today this myth in Russia about how Ukraine is fascist and they're a bunch of Nazis because in 1942, for example, they kind of were right, except turns out that Hitler didn't understand these nuances whatsoever. He thought that all Slavs were should basically subhuman. And so had he'd got the Ukrainians on their side, he probably could have got another million man army out of that. And that might have tipped the balance in the East. Fortunately for everybody, but unfortunately for the people of Ukraine, they were just the site of Huge bloody battle after battle of, you know, some of the some of the huge crimes of the Holocaust were committed there in Ukraine. There had been a large Jewish community that had been persecuted both by Stalin and now by the Nazis as well. Lviv in the very west of Ukraine had a huge, vibrant Jewish community, but not by the end of World War II. So, look, there are other complications as well. In the south, the Mongols kind of never left and... That's where you get sort of like the Cossacks and the Tatars of the Crimea, and that had also been Ottoman for a time. You know, I'm doing my best to sort of streamline this because, you know, <laughs> you've only got so much time to listen to this. So what was critical is in 1953, internally in the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union was just one huge block, moving the internal borders of the Soviet Union doesn't matter. And critically, Khrushchev actually moved the borders that included these areas that right now in the far east of Ukraine. This is what Putin is claiming. Oh, you know, they're separate and independent. <laughs> we'll discuss that in a moment. And also, critically, the Crimea, with all its naval bases, was suddenly made part of the Ukrainian territory within the Soviet Union. So Khrushchev, if you like, redefined the borders of Ukraine because it didn't matter to him. It made no actual day-to-day -day difference unless the whole of the Soviet Union collapses. So then in 1991, the whole of the Soviet Union collapses. And at that point, there's a big conversation about, well, what do we do? You know, who's which country? And so Ukraine had an independence vote. Are they going to be independent from Russia? And 92.3% of people there voted, yes, we want to be independent. So I think we have to nowadays respect their independence. Yes, there are a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine, but that's a bit like saying, 
Well, people in Scotland speak English, so they are all pro-England. Absolutely not. It's just a very common language in Ukraine.、It、does not mean that they're pro-Russian. And then, if you like, the most critical thing was in 1994. Ukraine had been a major site of military activity in the Soviet Union, and they had nuclear weapons. And this is the critical, critical thing because in 1994 there was something called the Budapest Memorandum, which is where, in return for Ukraine giving up the nukes that were part of the Soviet arsenal, in return Russia would recognise its borders, and respect its borders, and not carry out military intervention. So, is Putin going to give them back the nukes? I don't think so. So that was that happened in 1994. And then I want to briefly talk about Vladimir Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, because he's quite remarkable. He's in his forties, and he hasn't come from a political background. He has an IMDb page. People, you can see the movies and TV series he's been in, and this is the amazing one because from 2015 to 2019 he was in a comedy series. Where he's a sort of down on his luck teacher, and he becomes the president of Ukraine. And then in 2019, he became the president of Ukraine. So that is an amazing story. I mean, look, he's done lots of comedies. I don't know if they're any good, and also comedy is very culturally appropriate. And I can't speak, you know, Ukrainian or Russian, but I do know that you can see photos of him hilariously falling over with his, you know, literally showing off his underpants because that's appropriate for a comedy. But it's not something you tend to see for a president of any country. But here's the thing: since 2019, he has been involved in a major diplomatic incident with America. This is all over Rudy Giuliani going to Ukraine, trying to dig up dirt, and then Trump having the perfect phone call with with Ukraine. So suddenly he's involved in a major diplomatic in, in incident with the most powerful country in the world. Then he's also dealing with the global pandemic. Then he's dealing with the biggest economic recession the globe has ever seen, and now he's dealing with an invasion of his country. So, with all things considered, he has come across incredibly presidential and competent and serious. And I have huge respect for him. It's a bit like I don't know Rowan Atkinson running Britain or something like that, and yet getting away with it and being fairly competent at it as well. So yes, I have taken you all the way from the very first history book ever written, which kind of mentions Ukraine or at least that area, taking you to modern day Ukraine and where this situation is happening now. So actually, Slavic culture started in Ukraine. If anything, Russia should be theoretically subservient to Ukraine and not the other way around. And even if you want to look at modern day jurisdictions and things like that. And, and legalities again. Russia is doing the wrong thing. There's just no way you cut this where Russia is the good guy. I really hope that helped. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I'm at Jem Deducci on Twitter. Hopefully, we'll have something a bit more fun next week. Thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.